That is our monthly prayer service, and we're going to incorporate it in with our series on how to share the gospel. One of the foundational principles about reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we, that we must pray for them. If we want to see lost people embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, uh, we have to pray for God to save them. That is absolutely crucial. Yet our responsibility doesn't end just with praying. We also have to be willing to go to the lost. We have to be willing to do both to intercede that God would work in their lives and open their eyes to see their need for Jesus, but also be willing to be the ones who would go to them and talk to them about their need for Jesus. Uh, Evangelism without prayer will always be an effective prayer that doesn't lead us to a deeper passion and compassion and actions to reach the lost is always flawed. If Gaiman is to be one for Christ, then, then we have to be a people who pray and act. We can't do one without the other. So tonight, I want us to focus on three words that will help us to pray and then act. Um, first is, is visualize. To visualize, it is to form a mental image about something. In this case, we want to visualize those that we want to hear the good news of the gospel. Right? I called it praying to proclaim. Um, because that's what we're doing. We're proclaiming the gospel. We want to visualize certain things about those that we are seeking to proclaim the good news of the gospel to. There are three areas that we need to visualize if we're going to proclaim the good news to people. First is we want to visualize hearts. right? Visualize their hearts. One of the most common statements that people make who are not living for Jesus, whether they're actually lost, whether they're simply just a prodigal, is that you can't judge my heart. I've probably had, we have all heard someone make a statement along those lines. Well, you can't judge my heart. You don't know what's in my heart. Things along those lines. And while that statement has, it sounds right, the question we need to ask, is it? Is it a true statement? Are we able to judge someone's heart? Well, Let's look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth evil things. So according to Jesus, a a good person, a righteous person, a born again person, will have a a good treasure of their heart, and that will bring forth good things. At the same time, an unbeliever, or as he says, an evil person, will have an evil treasure in their hearts, and it will bring forth evil things. Now in this particular passage, and in the, the other one like it in Luke, he speaks specifically about words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, when you look at what the Bible says about what we might call evil speaking, it covers things such as profanity, gossip, bad-mouthing others, vulgar or profane jokes or stories, lying, abusive language, saying things about God that aren't true, whether it would be a false teacher uh, saying, thus says the Lord when the Lord has not said, or, or someone just saying, God has told me He's okay with the way I'm living. God is happy with my lifestyle right now. 
Right? And there's, there's probably more that the Bible has to say about the way we talk, the ba- about bad things that come out of our mouths. But those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head this afternoon. Now, in light of what Jesus says here, and what Scripture says is, is evil speaking, what could we conclude about the heart of a person who consistently uses profanity? Are they, they're bringing forth evil out of their mouth, But does that mean that there's a a righteous, a pure treasure in their hearts? Well, clearly that wouldn't be the testimony that Jesus would give. What if they consistently gossip? Is that evil treasure that's coming out of their mouth, is it the reflection of of a pure heart? Well, not according to Jesus. What if they consistently badmouth others? Is that a reflection, is that abundance of a pure heart? Well, not according to Jesus. What if they consistently tell vulgar jokes or profane jokes or profane stories? Is that the, the sign of an abundance of a pure heart? Well, not according to Jesus. What if they consistently lie? What if they're verbally, consistently verbally abusive to others? What if they say things about God that aren't true like... God is okay with something Scripture says God is not okay with. Or they say that God is giving them peace about living in sin. Can we biblically say anything about a person's heart based upon their words? Well, according to Jesus, we can. We can say that evil words flow from an evil heart. Now that's not being judgmental. That is just taking what Jesus says at face value. That is just saying that Jesus is an expert communicator and He is able to say what He means and mean what He says in a way that we are able to understand. Therefore, evil speech reflects an evil heart that tells us that it's an evil person. That's what Jesus says. Now, You might say, well, now that's taking it a little too far, a little too literally. But look at what Jesus goes on to say in the very next verses. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So in judgment, on judgment day, words will matter. But not only will words matter, words will matter to such an extent that Jesus says that by our words we will either be justified, which is saved, or condemned, which is lost. Now he's not teaching salvation by pure words. What he's teaching is a reflection of what he said here. That our words are such an accurate reflection of the heart and the character that you could look at a person's words... And from that you could determine their spiritual condition. So as we try to visualize the heart of people, we just merely need to listen to how they talk, to the things that they say. Their words are an accurate reflection of their spiritual condition. But it's not just words, it's actions as well. He says in Mark's gospel, that which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. 
For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil faults, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. So he gives us this list of things that defile. And these sins defile because they flow from the heart, right? So we could easily say that out of the abundance of the heart, the life speaks, is in essence what he's saying here. So when these things are a part of someone's life, it's because their heart is defiled. Again, I think with all things, with words and with this, it would be consistently. No one is perfect. We all flaw. We are all flawed and we make mistakes. But if we are consistently speaking in that way, we consistently live in these ways, it says something about our character, our heart, our spiritual condition. Right? So just a quick rundown of these things. Evil thoughts. The Greek word for evil is also translated as, as grievous, harmful, malicious, and lewd. So evil thoughts, they don't necessarily, this would be hard for us to see unless they act upon them. But these are thoughts of doing harm to people, of evil toward people, of maliciously wanting to harm someone, or sexually lewd thoughts. But adultery is being sexually unfaithful to your spouse. Fornication is any sexual relationship outside the bonds of marriage. But when you take the Sermon of the Mount into consideration, Jesus explains that the spirit of the law behind the law against adultery and sexual immorality in general is lust. Right, So it's not just the physical act that is defiling. It is lust. So it's so like pornography would fit within this category. Murder, wrongfully take another person's life. Again, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, we, could, we would find that the spirit behind the law against murder is, is essentially just unjust or unjustified anger. Right? It is an anger that treats people with contempt. So you find someone that is consistently, regularly angry. They are just an angry person. That's what that we'd be talking about there. If they're in their anger, they contemptuously treat people and call them names. That would be what, what Jesus is talking about there. Theft, cheaters steal, take from another person. Covetousness. Um, the Greek word, it meant a consuming desire to have more, and it would cover everything from money, fame, power, sex, uh, promotion, and stuff. I mean, there's a consuming desire for more of, of anything, right? So it is someone who's really never satisfied with what they have. There's always more better, and they are unsettled by the fact that there's more and better out there that they don't have. Wickedness, it seems to focus mostly on doing harmful things to others. Um, it's malice and hatred and the attempt to do harm to others. And given what the Bible says about other things, we could take that with physically. We could also take it with word. That we, the things that are said are done to harm a person's reputation would fit within this. Especially considering what blasphemy is. And we'll see that in just a minute. Deceit, to lie. Uh, the word, it literally was word that was to bait someone into a trap. So it's to mislead someone. To twist the truth in an effort to influence them to do something. Lasciviousness. It was a general word to describe all sorts of moral uncleanness. 
But the interesting word about lasciviousness is it not only describes the actions of moral uncleanness, but it describes the attitude about moral uncleanness. A lascivious person not only lives in sinful ways, but they are really not ashamed of their sin. They're pretty happy. They're proud of their sinful life. An evil eye, I've always found that humorous, uh, but an evil eye is an eye, apparently, that, that lusts for what it doesn't have. Right? So it's similar to covetousness and jealousy and that it wants what another has. But with an evil eye is kind of an attitude of anger towards those that have what they don't have. You have a car that I want. And I'm not only I want that vehicle, but I kind of hate you because you have what I don't have. You received an award. And not only did I want to receive that award, I kind of hate you because you received it. It makes me mad at you that you received what I wanted. That's kind of the idea of an evil eye. Blasphemy. In this case, blasphemy has very little to do with blaspheming God, but more about blaspheming humans. It's, it's essentially slander. It is seeking to harm another's reputation by spreading gossip, lies, or rumors about them. Really, it doesn't have to be lies or a rumor or gossip. It can be anything we say. If what I'm saying, if I know a true secret about you, and telling that secret will make you look bad in the community, and I tell it, that is blasphemy. It is an attempt to harm your reputation, among others. Pride, self-exaltation. Uh, arrogance causes us to consider ourselves better than others. Foolishness. Foolishness is an interesting one because the ideas, one of the ideas of foolishness is, is simply thoughtlessness. Someone who speaks without thinking is acting foolishly. Someone who acts without considering the consequences is, act, is, is foolish. Um, a person who is thoughtless regarding their morals, their duties in life, or their behavior is foolish. All of those things are a reflection of the condition of a person's heart. Now, we know that that's not a complete list. We could look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12, or Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and we would see a similar list. And in all of those lists, we would find the same sort of thing. I mean, the question that we would ask is, can we biblically say anything about a person's heart based upon these actions being consistently in their lives? Yes. We can say evil actions, defiling actions, flow from an evil or a defiled heart. And they reveal a person's spiritual condition. So we talk about visualizing someone's heart. We are saying, okay, in light of what I know about them, in light of the way I hear them speak, in light of the way I see them live, everything says their heart is not right with God. Right? It is seeing them clearly in light of their words and in their actions. So if we are to proclaim the good news of the gospel faithfully, we must allow ourselves to accurately visualize people's heart and spiritual condition based upon the evidence they present through their words and through their lives. Right? We're, we're not 
We're not prosecuting them. That's not what we're doing. That's not our job. We're not making up evidence. What we're doing is they are presenting their, their life, my life, your life. We are presenting evidence about the condition of our heart every moment of our lives. And it is right, it is right for us to consider that evidence in light of Scripture and say, this tells me something about them. They need Jesus. So visualize their hearts. Secondly, visualize consequences. Scripture teaches that actions have consequences. We know about the law Sowing and reaping. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Some translations say destruction. But he that soweth of the Spirit shall reap of the Spirit life everlasting. Everyone on the earth will reap a harvest from the life that they live. That's not a question. The only question is, what will we reap? And what we reap depends upon what we sow. And those who sow to the flesh, they will eventually reap the consequences of corruption or destruction. Now, I don't have time to look at any of these passages in depth. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, is essentially saying, don't think they're the exception. Don't think you're the exception. And don't think this person over here is going to be the exception. Don't don't trick yourself into believing that you or anyone else will be the exception because, because you're not. No one will be the exception. Now this, the idea that there are consequences, and, and the idea here, the sowing and reaping is earthly consequences. We're not, we'll look at hell in just a second quickly. But we're talking about earthly, painful consequences. That will come into their lives because of a lifestyle of sin. Because of their rebellion against God. Now for us, as those who are seeking to proclaim the gospel. We have to understand that there are consequences in this life for sowing to the flesh. The reason is, many people who live in rebellion. Again, whether they're a prodigal or whether they're just lost. One of their justifications for their life. And one of the reasons they will tell us they, they want us to leave them alone is, is their life is fine. Everything's fine. I like my life. I'm happy the way that I am. Everything is great in my life. And that's what they want us to believe. And if we believe that and we take this out of the concept, we will not proclaim the gospel to them. But the reality is they're not fine. Everything is not okay. Our knowledge of Scripture prevents us from accepting that saying. Maybe they feel fine, but that changes nothing. They that sow to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption and destruction. They will. There are painful, harmful, terrible consequences in this life. For people who live in rejection of Jesus and in rebellion to Him. And we have to let ourselves visualize that. Because if we believe that they're fine and we're messing up their life, we're going to see sharing the gospel as doing harm. 
Well, I'm just messing with them. I'm making them unhappy. I'm hurting their feelings. I'm disturbing their sleep at night. But if I see that what I'm doing is trying to prevent terrible tragedy from coming into their life, well, now that's a different story. The gospel, it is good news of a Savior who delivers. What we are trying to do in telling them the gospel it is not make them miserable. It is to deliver them from the misery that will come in this life. So we have to, we have to allow ourselves to accurately visualize the terrible consequences that those we are trying to reach are bringing upon themselves. And that's the key. They are bringing it upon themselves. It's not God being mean. It's not the world is unfair. It is. It is the natural reaping of what you've spent a lifetime of sowing. And what we're trying to do is prevent that from happening to them in their lives. And then visualize hell. Not only are there earthly consequences for sin, but there are eternal consequences for sin as well. Now we won't, we don't have time to, to look at the story of the rich man and Lazarus, but the text is there, Luke 16, 19 through 31. But there are some truths that I just want to hit on quickly as we go through. The story of the rich man dying and going to hell contains the most teaching on hell that we have in Scripture, the most detail. And there are at least four Four truths that it reveals to us about hell. First is that people really do go to hell. I mean, that's a real thing. It's not just a story. It's not a, a parable that people really do go to hell when they die. Hell is horrible is the second thing it teaches. The rich man lifted up his eyes in torments. He was in tormented by the flame. Hell is, is horrible. I believe that is, no matter how bad we imagine hell to be, Hell is far worse than that, I, I do believe. Third, there is no getting out of hell. The rich man wants to be delivered. And Abraham says there is a great gulf fixed. So those who are where you are cannot come to us. And those who are where we are cannot go to you. Once someone dies or Jesus returns, eternity is set. In this life, there are second, third, fourth, millionth chances. To turn to Jesus. The moment someone enters into the next life. The moment they die. It is set for all eternity. There is no chances in hell. And then the fourth. Is that people must believe the testimony of scripture to avoid hell. But the rich man says. Send Lazarus to my brothers. Father Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets. The word of God. Let them hear them. The rich man says, oh no, they're, they're too smart for that. But if someone were to go to them from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham says, if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe the one rise from the dead. In the end, the testimony of Scripture points us to Jesus. And in order to avoid hell, people have to believe that. And that those are some really important facts about eternity in general and hell specifically. Now something we can do if we really want to let that passage weigh on our hearts, is to replace the rich man with someone that we know and care about that we want to reach with the gospel. 
I mean, the story of an unnamed rich man going to hell and suffering for eternity is terrible. But if we're being really, really honest, it doesn't exactly grip our hearts in a way that makes me want to go and share the gospel. But if I replace the unnamed rich man with my Uncle Fred, he's in hell. And that's where he's going to be. And that's what's going to happen to him. I am gripped then to go to him. Try to talk to him about Jesus. If we are to proclaim the good news of the gospel, we must allow ourselves to accurately visualize the horrors of hell. The truths about hell. And we must also allow ourselves to visualize those that we know who are apart from Jesus as going there. So that we will be compelled to go and do all that we can to save them, to to snatch them from the flames of judgment, as Jude says. Let's take just a few minutes and pray. And as you pray, ask God to help you to clearly visualize the heart and spiritual condition, whoever it is you have on your heart that you're trying to reach. Ask God to help you clearly visualize the consequences that you see they are going to reap and bring into their own lives. And ask God to help you to clearly visualize the reality and the horror of hell. Heavenly Father, we come. And Lord, this is, it is hard. There's just no getting around it. To visualize these things is tough. Particularly about people that we truly, truly care about. Because we want to imagine the best about them. And we want We just want to imagine that they're going to be okay in the end. That sort of self-deception doesn't actually help them. All it does is soothe our conscience while we let them go unhindered to hell. Guide us, Father, and let us be a people that cannot do that. Lord, we do not want to be judgmental, but we do want to be biblical. And we can hear the consistent language of a person, see the consistent lifestyle of a person, and from that, we we can learn much about the condition of their heart. Let us just take what Jesus said at at face value, not try to rationalize it or excuse it and just say, their words, their life says something to me. And that we would visualize their condition as being separated from you. Lord, let us be able to, to see what they're doing 
And know that, Lord, the end of that even in this life is tragedy. The end of that even in this life is corruption and destruction. And again, let us not deceive and imagine that somehow they're going to be the exception. To see the end of that, Lord, so that we would be compelled to go to them. And then, oh God, no one wants to think about hell. But it is real and it is waiting for all of those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord. Lord, let that always be a, a raw, tender spot in our lives. Lord, we would not be a people who just let people go to hell without doing all that we could to stand in their way. Guide us for the rest of the service. Help us to be busy about your business, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So after we visualize, we want to agonize. Once we accurately visualize, the next result is to agonize. Because what we're visualizing It's not pleasant. What we just talked about, those are not our happy thoughts. We should be burdened by what we're clearly seeing in the lives of those that we're trying to reach. The scripture is filled with examples of those who agonized over the spiritual condition of others. And they set an example for us. The psalmist, he said, rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. As he looked at those who disregarded God's law and lived how they wanted, his heart was broken and he wept over them. Jeremiah said, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He saw consequences. They were suffering in this life because of their sin. And even though he had warned them to turn, or this would happen and they had rejected him, his heart was broken and he wept. Over the suffering that they experienced in this life. Bible tells us about Jesus that when he came near the city, he wept over it. Jesus knew these people were going to continue to reject him. He knew they were not going to embrace him and they were in fact going to turn him over. And yet when he stood over the city and he looked over it, he, he wept. The Greek word for wept does not Picture stoically standing there with a tear trickling down his face. Instead, it it is a deep sob. The amplified version of the Bible explains that he wept audibly. What we see is the Son of God nearly overcome with the emotion of sadness because of the lostness of the people and the judgment that they would face. And then Paul's is possibly the most familiar. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was nearly overwhelmed at the burden he had for the salvation of his Jewish brethren. The the burden that he felt was not temporary or fleeting. It was a, a constant pain in his heart. The message paraphrase translate this by saying it was an enormous pain that was deep within Paul and he was never free from it. And so all through Scripture, Old and New Testament, we find 
that those who could accurately visualize what was going on, what was coming, they agonized over it. They, they were burdened. They were broken about it. And I think the agonizing over it is an important aspect. Not because it's comfortable, because it's not. The pain of agonizing over someone is not pleasant. Uh, again, it's not our happy thoughts. But it's important what it motivates us to do. And a big part of what it motivates us to do is to pray. I mean, the natural response of a child of God who feels agony, it is to cry out to God to do something. Cry out to God to make a difference. And in this case, we are crying out to God for their salvation. But a part of what we pray is not just that God would save them. There is something else that we pray. Turn to Ephesians 6. Verse 18 through 20. Part of Paul talking about the, the armor of God and spiritual warfare. Verse 18 he says, Praying always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching therewith, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So telling them to pray as a part of spiritual warfare, Paul asked them to pray for him. Pray that he would speak boldly the gospel of Christ, that he would speak clearly the gospel of Christ and the implication is that he would have opportunities to speak the gospel of Christ. We'll look next week when we talk about having spiritual conversations. We'll talk more about praying to speak clearly and boldly and what that would look like. But tonight, just the idea that we are to pray for opportunities to share the good news, to tell folks about Jesus. Now, in, in praying for opportunities to proclaim the good news of the gospel, we, we should pray in two ways. One way is just a general way. God, today as I go throughout my life, give me an opportunity. Right? Who knows who we'll encounter? Who knows the kind of people we'll meet? What may come up in our lives? And it's just for God to be in a general way to work in my life so that somebody I meet along the way, I could see and know that there's a right opportunity and then talk to them about Jesus. But there's also a general way to pray where we pray specifically for someone we care about. Right? Because, we, again, we all have folks that we love that don't know Jesus. They may be backslidden, they may be just completely lost, but they're not living for Jesus, not living as they should. And if it's something, the closer we are, the harder that conversation often is to have the reality. But what we need to do is pray for opportunities to arise. Because in, in virtually every relationship we have, something that is spiritually related will eventually come up. And so what we're praying for is not so that we can track them in our car going 70 miles an hour down the road and, and force them to listen. Although I'm not opposed to that if that's what we need to do. But just for an opportunity to come up. Something. Something to stir in their heart. Maybe make them ask us a question. What does the Bible say about? What do you believe about? What is your view on? For them to say, boy, there's some. I really feel uneasy in my life. I really feel anxious. I, I feel 
unsatisfied. Something like that that could give us a lead in to say, well, let me, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how Jesus helped me with that. Let me, let me show you Jesus. That we, we must pray for those sort of an opportunities. Right? Pray that God would open doors. And again, we'll talk about opening doors next week. But for God to make a way for us to get to talk to them about Jesus. Sure, we pray for God to save them. We pray for God to send other people to them. We pray all of those things. But we also pray for God to work through us. To help them come to faith and to come to knowledge of Jesus Christ. In both cases, whether we're praying generally or specifically, the desire flows out of our visualizing and agonizing. Right? I mean, as we look at the multitudes in Walmart, we know the majority of them don't know Jesus. So we visualize and we agonize and we pray for an opportunity, but then we look at those that we do know, those that we are burdened for. We visualize what we see in their life, what's coming. We agonize and so we pray for God to give us that opportunity. And then that leads us to evangelize. The last step. In all of the cases, except for maybe that of the psalmist, those who agonized did something about their agony. They did pray. But that wasn't all that they did. Jeremiah prayed. Then he went and said, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus prayed. But then he went and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Paul prayed. Then he went into the synagogues where his Jewish brethren were. And he explained to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophets had foretold. They went to people and did what they could to try to turn them from the path of death to the path of life. If we visualize, if we agonize, we must evangelize. We, we must. Turn to Romans 10, 13 through 14. Familiar passage. Paul starts off in verse 13. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a tremendous promise. Anyone, anyone, anyone can be saved. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Anyone, it doesn't matter what they've done, where they've been, what religion they belong to. If they call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But there is a catch, so to speak. Look at verse 14. How then shall they call upon him, on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. But how can a person call upon the Lord if they don't believe in the Lord? And how can a person believe? In Jesus, in order to call on Jesus, if they don't, they've never heard about Jesus. And how will someone hear about Jesus so they can believe in Jesus and call on Jesus if no one ever tells them about Jesus? These questions are all the equivalent of one cannot. Everyone can be saved, but no one will be saved 
if they don't call upon Him. And they won't be called upon Him if they don't believe in Him. And they won't believe in Him if they don't hear about Him. And they won't hear about Him unless someone tells them. One thing that it's important to remember in the day in which we live, it's all in previous years, generations, it was understood that people kind of had a God consciousness. And they, they probably knew they needed God. And they knew who Jesus was. They just weren't surrendered to Him. It's not the world we live in anymore. There are people all around us that have never set foot in church outside of a wedding or a funeral. And, and not only have they not, their parents probably never set foot in a church outside of a wedding or a funeral. They're raising their kids who have not set foot in a church outside of a wedding or a funeral. They, they truly have no concept of who Jesus is. And so they can't. They, they cannot be saved unless someone goes to them and explains to them who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They must hear. I mean, they must. They will not be saved unless they hear. Now again, that, that idea is important in our day when so many want to talk about lifestyle evangelism. But lifestyle evangelism essentially says, I will live as a solid Christian, and people will see my life, and then they'll come to Jesus. And that sounds good, but the reality is that never happens. No one will ever see how we live and realize their need for Jesus. There are two possible outcomes of solid lifestyle evangelism. One, they will see how we live, and they will come to us and say, Why do you have peace when others are anxious? Why do you not live like this when everyone else does? Why do you believe what you believe? But guess what we have to do then? We have to open our mouths and declare the gospel to them. Second thing that lifestyle evangelism will do is when we go to them to talk to them and we share Jesus, they will look at us and they will say, I've seen your life and it is consistent with the message you're saying. I will listen. To what you have to say. But in the end. Words must always be used. Look at verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word. Not by seeing a lifestyle. Not now. Not ever. Our lifestyle can give credibility to our words. Our lifestyle can cause them to question their lifestyle, their issues. But in the end, words must always be spoken. There's a, a saying, and we're out of time, so we'll hurry. There's a saying that says, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. And that It's often attributed to a man by the name of St. Francis of Assisi. The reality is he never made that statement. He was a preaching friar. He preached the gospel. We preach the gospel at all times and we use words because words are absolutely necessary. They, they must be heard before someone can believe and call 
and be saved. So let's take just a minute and, and just and pray. I missed praying before because I was in a hurry. Pray that God would give us opportunities this week and that we would take those opportunities. Father, we love you. We want to be witnesses for Christ. We want to tell people the good news about the Savior who came. Give us opportunities this week to talk to just random people about Jesus. But Lord, those people that we are agonizing over most Give us opportunities this week to talk to them about Jesus too. Let our lifestyle be consistent with our words, but let us know that our lifestyle will not lead another to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word, and without the word, they will not know about Jesus, they will not believe in Jesus, they will not call upon Jesus, and so they will not Be saved by Jesus without the word. Help us with this, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now visualizing and agonizing isn't fun. But as we pray, and as we visualize, as we agonize, and it leads to evangelizing, there's hope. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weepeth, goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You ever heard sing the song Bringing in the Sheaves? It's based upon this. When, when those we visualize, agonize, and try to evangelize come to Jesus, we will experience an unspeakable joy that is filled with glory. There is very little in life as powerfully hope and joy filling as connecting someone to Jesus, leading them in that moment. To Christ as their Savior. And so when we agonize. And we sow in tears. At some point we will reap. With joy. So agony now. Discomfort as we evangelize now. The greatest joy of all. Eventually. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed with prayer.